This is turning out to be quite the year for celebrations in London. This is a huge deal for the United Kingdom because only one monarch in history has ever had a diamond jubilee before. Hi, I'm Rick Steves. Coming up, London tour guides Tom Hooper and Gillian Chadwick clue us in on the excitement visitors to London can find this year during the Queen's Jubilee. Plus, big anniversaries for Dickens, the Titanic, the Rolling Stones, and the Summer Olympics. I failed to get tickets, so I shall be crying miserably. <laughs> well, I've actually got tickets. I'm you one do? of the lucky ones, <laughs> yeah. And friends from Greece and Bulgaria tell us about their many traditions for observing Orthodox Easter this weekend, like sending a flame from Jerusalem to Athens each year as a symbol of the holiday. That light brings health and luck and prosperity to your house. Also, in the yard of the church, we have red eggs. Celebrate the world with us. It's Travel with Rick Steves. Do you like a good party? Hi, I'm Rick Steves. Today on Travel with Rick Steves, we're getting ready to join in the celebrations for some big events, both in Britain and among Eastern Orthodox communities all over the world. A little later in the hour, friends from Greece and Bulgaria tell us how this weekend is their biggest holiday of the year. As their most important religious holiday, Orthodox Easter is a big party with lots of interesting traditions you just won't find in Catholic and Protestant churches. Let's start the hour with a look at the big celebrations London's gearing up for. For starters, the Queen's Jubilee marks her 60 years on the throne this June. Needless to say, it's a once-in-a-many-lifetime event for Britain and the Commonwealth. This year also marks 200 years since Charles Dickens was born. And, of course, the Summer Olympics and everything that goes with that will turn London on end this July and August. How can we as visitors enjoy London during these festivities, and how will it affect our ability to get around and find hotels? To help us get into the spirit of things, we're joined by London Blue Badge Guides, Gillian Chadwick and Tom Hooper. Gillian and Tom, thanks for joining us. Hello. You're very welcome. So the big news really is the Olympics. What's it like to be a guide in London with the Olympics approaching? Incredibly exciting. I'm loving it. I Why? already take tours around the Olympic site, and you can see how it's grown. I've been doing it for two years, and you can see how it's all grown in that period. It and it's all finished, actually. It must have been the, like the biggest construction site in all of Europe for Oh, a while. definitely. It's a 500-acre site. What was the rationale for London choosing the district of Stratford for the Olympics? It's one of the areas which has been regenerated. It was a massively run-down area, lots of industry, very toxic soil. It's said that one of the reasons London won the Olympics was because it went for this green Olympics. It's going to be the most sustainable Olympics ever. Even the soil has gone through washing machines. Mm. 85% of it's reused. Is that right? And you've taken... One of the most derelict, run-down yeah. parts of London. Yeah. It's a town called Stratford. It used to London. be known as London's backyard. It was London's where all the smelly and dangerous industries... London, London's and dumping yard. Yeah, yeah. exactly. Yeah. 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 Not to be confused with Stratford, which is... Stratford, not, Stratford, not Stratford. Couldn't be more different. It couldn't no. be more... So all the <laughs> tourists know Stratford yeah. where, where yeah. Uh, this is Shakespeare was. 15 yeah. minutes on the... This is a godforsaken place that most tourists would never think of going to. No, no. And suddenly, London chooses this place to be sort of anointed as the mm. place that will host the Olympics, but with this vision, after the Olympics are gone, how will Stratford be different after the Olympics are gone? Well, no more white elephants that we've had in previous Olympic Games. The buildings will be used. The Olympic Village will be converted into housing for local people. The aquatic centre will be used as a swimming pool. Uh, Some of the other sports Mm. centres will be for local people as well. They've even built a school there, which obviously is not going to be used during the Games as a school, but after the Games in Legacy, it will be used as a school. Even the stadium, as I understand it, which for Olympics has to seat something like 80,000, mm-hmm. has been designed so that it's got the main stadium, which will be used afterwards, and it's got this superstructure on top to add the seating for the Games. Take that away and you have a usable, credible stadium afterwards. Mm-hmm. Which, with the seating of less than 80,000. Yeah. yeah. 20, 25,000. Well, the permanent that? structure is concrete and yeah. that's 25,000. And then they've got 55,000 demountable seats. Okay. Now, with all the economic um, struggles and challenges, was there much controversy around sinking so much investment into this Olympic infrastructure? There was quite a big celebration to start with. Yeah, and then people started questioning the the money going into it. But now, because the media are very pro-Olympics, 
Uh, most people mm. are pro-Olympics because the media control everything, really. And, of course, as you get into the year, there's so obvious more and more amazing things going to be happening around and before and after the Olympics and mm. Paralympics. Oh, that, yeah, all eyes will be all, on London. Mm. Yeah. And it's not just going to be the sports. In London, they've got the cultural Olympics as well. So a lot of cultural mm. events. Cultural Olympics. Oh, absolutely. Lots of festivals in the streets, uh, lots of different theatre productions, music, lots of things going in in the parks of London, free events. Lots of things to emphasise the multicultural nature yeah. of the, the very mm-hmm. cosmopolitan city. And The Olympics are going from July 27 until August 12th. Yes. And then the... Um, then it closes Par- for two weeks uh-huh. and then the Paralympics Paralympics start. after yeah. that. And then there'll be cultural events in conjunction with that yep. all yep. over London. The whole, time. The whole, whole lot, whole time. Are be. the Olympics really impacting London or England? Ah, Mainly London, but there are events taking place in Dorset, for example. There's sailing. But if you're a traveler and you're thinking about just coming into London, yeah. uh, you'd expect congestion and higher prices and so on during the Olympic period. What is it going to be like during the Olympics if you are worried about the crowds and the higher prices? Elsewhere in Britain. Won't make any difference. Won't make any difference at all. No difference at all. The only Olympic event which is all over the place is the football, but that will not impact on visitors at all. No. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're talking with two London guides, Gillian Chadwick and Tom Hooper, about an exciting year in England, specifically London, as London hosts the Summer Olympics. Our phone number is 877-333-7425. Dale's on the phone in Springfield, Illinois. Dale, thanks for your call. Hey, it's good to be here, Rick. Thanks for having me. You bet. My son and I are going to be arriving in London on uh, June the 20th, and we're going to have about three or four days after having spent about 10 days in Kenya. And we're interested in two things. One, uh, what we might be able to do related to the Olympics. I was just listening to your discussion of some of the pre-Olympic activities. Uh, My son has a background in in, uh, music, so we might be interested in some of those things, but we'd also be interested in knowing what types of things we could do to see the facilities where the Olympics are going to be held that far out in advance, about a month in advance. So that's a very good question. As yeah. a tourist coming into London, missing the Olympics, but being there between now and uh, July 27, mm. what can a tourist do to uh, enjoy a peek at the Olympic? Well, hello, Dale. Uh, there are walks that are going every day already. There have been for years, in fact, uh, that leave from very close to the Olympic Park site and you get taken up where you can see all the main venues, and they last for about an hour and a half or two hours. You and take the you take the tube to what stop? Uh, you take the tube to Stratford. Stratford, yeah. Because yeah, I was just I took that tour and it was fascinating. Yeah. And there's actually a viewpoint built on, so you can walk along yes. and yes. see the yeah. all the facilities. So even though the construction's done, these tours will still be going. Yeah, and, yep. you, and you will get superb views of the stadium and yeah, and other there's, facilities. There's also there's a new shopping centre called Westfield where there's a shop called John Lewis where there's a fantastic view from the actual store. Strangest thing, by the way, I was there on the tour and we were seeing a lot of construction gates and security and a whole army of Gurkhas. Yes, these Nepali warriors that helped uh, England way yeah, back in colonial times for their, with their yeah. long knives and yeah. everything. And they've, oh. they've been part of the British Army since at least the nineteenth century. So. so, how is it that Gurkhas got assigned to the Olympic Stadium site for security? Well, they've they now have the right to become and live as UK citizens. Okay, so so they are ideal people once they go out of the armed forces. It's a job which. To yeah. rely on for security. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So Gurkhas get yeah. hired, likely, after yeah. their armed yeah. uh, service time mm-hmm. as security guards. Yep. Thanks for your call, Dale. Thank you for having me. Helen's on the line from Shrewsbury, Massachusetts. Helen, thanks for your call. Hi, thank you. No, I appreciate you taking my call. Yeah. Um, yes, I had a question. Um, I was fortunate enough to go to the Atlanta Olympics back in 96, and there was a way to get hold of people that were opening up their homes during the time frame of the Olympics there. I didn't know if there was any web links to a similar thing that might be happening in London or so out England to catch the other football matches. Or There are definitely organizations that are using family homes and renting out, but I, I can't remember the name of it, I'm afraid. I'm sure if you Google but, it... And there, there are, I yeah. think there are web links as well. Yeah. So people will be opening oh, up yes, their homes, yeah. sort of impromptu B&Bs. Yeah. Yeah. Yes, it's been much reported that people have realized that this is a, a way to up your being, family income yes. a bit and be welcome. And showing, of course, British warm hospitality to the world. Yeah. Have you, have you looked <laughs> on the London site, london2012.com? 
I haven't yet. No, no. I, I know that I need a lot of time to do my research. Well, that's good. Journey, so, uh, London, <laughs> London2012.com. So yes. you go there for this oh, sort of... A, just, just be careful to make sure you know where the place is mm. so that you, know, that you are within some reasonable distance yeah. of what you want to do because London is so huge you could, you could find three hours getting yeah. there, yeah. yeah. Yeah, I think I may in fact have gone onto that website, but then I was only focused on looking at all of the Diamond Jubilee, the flotilla event on the Thames and all yes. that. So mm-hmm. <laughs> lots going on. I don't think I got over to the Olympics <laughs> at that point, but uh, but both are a dream. Mm-hmm. And um, on that same website, will I be able to get my way to purchasing tickets to Olympic events? Uh, that's or is that a good going question. to be more a regular <laughs> Olympic um, There's been website. so much demand for Olympic tickets. There aren't many left now, but they have reserved about a million. So hopefully there will be something. And they for. have also introduced a facility where people who've got tickets who can't use them yeah, that's true. can also resell oh, yeah. on the yeah. web. Oh, no, and that's that good. may be mm. worth looking at occasionally. That's happening at the moment, yeah. actually. They've just started that. Hey, Helen, I see on your note here that you were lucky enough to be in London for the royal wedding. I was, yes. Ah. It was a real treat. Yes, a friend of mine was working over there, and he had a two-bedroom flat and put me up right next to St. Paul's. So so did you have have a good seat in the Abbey? (laughs) (laughs) Well, I did tease my friend. I took a close-up picture of the TV set and posted it on Facebook (laughs) that I'd had a brilliant seat. (laughs) You had a front-row seat in front of the TV. Very nice. Helen, how was it dealing with London during an event like that from a crowd point of view if you're a tourist that didn't know the city like a local? Right. Well, I'm not put off by crowds, so that was good. And then just the public transportation was terrific. You know, got on the tube and got on over to Hyde Park, and they had the great big trons there. And so, you you know, know, London knows how to deal with the masses that way. And I I hope you found the crowds were quite friendly because I think the British, particular occasions like that, are very, very outgoing in spite of the reserved reputation which sometimes think we have. Piccadilly was, you know, completely void of cars. <laughs> it was just all foot traffic. So. Because they cut off the so traffic for really the event. Something. I yeah. think London does a masterful job of handling huge crowds on events like that. Yeah. And also, there's right. been unprecedented investment, I think, in the infrastructure to get people out there using yes. the tube and so on. Yeah. Talk about that a little bit, Tom. What have they done with the well, they've, transportation? Well, they've increased the ways of going to the Olympic site by... First, there's an underground line called the Jubilee, which will take you, what, 15, 20 minutes to get out. There's something which is partly monorail called Docklands Light Railway, which will also take you fast out. And they've built a whole new railway line, which also goes to southern England called the Javelin. Which, which goes from downtown London to up to Scrapcross. Scrap and I it's think there's 10 minutes. a, a good connection actually seven, from, the, yeah. um, from the Eurostar from Paris. Yeah. You, can, yeah. you can zip from yeah. Paris now in what, two and a half hours to London. Yeah, yeah I think even less. Fa- yeah. Less than that, maybe yeah. close to two mm. hours. Yeah. And then another 15 minutes or so and, yeah. and you're in Stratford. Yes. You could commute in from Paris for this. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And it's very well signposted and easy to get to. Helen, have fun. Brilliant. Thank you very much. Thanks for your call. Yeah. More of your calls are just ahead at 877-333-7425 as Tom Hooper and Jillian Chadwick fill us in on the many things that make a visit to London extra special this year. By email, we're at radio at ricksteves.com. You can almost feel the anticipation in the air right now in London as the city enjoys one of the biggest years ever for special celebrations and anniversaries. Helping us to join in are Gillian Chadwick and Tom Hooper. Now, we've talked about the Olympics. That's exciting, but there's lots more going on. What will be happening in conjunction with the Queen's Diamond Jubilee? 
Uh, I think one of the best events will be the flotilla of small craft that will accompany the Royal Barge along the River Thames. Oh, that'll be spectacular. That will be fantastic. So the Queen's been on the throne now for 60 yeah. years. Mm. Gillian, what, what are the, the dates of the Jubilee actually for these big events? The weekend of June 2nd, 3rd, and then the Monday and the Tuesday afterwards oh, okay. will be public holidays, like we did last year for the Royal Wedding, so two extra days holiday. Now, what else is going to be happening if you're not there for that? Just The, the formal event will be the Queen going to a Jubilee service in St. Paul's Cathedral. Mm-hmm. So that will usually involve a big procession mm. to St. Paul's and the service at St. Paul's. And this is a huge deal for the United Kingdom because only one monarch in history has ever had a diamond jubilee before Queen Victoria. And she was way too old to even get out of the carriage to go into the cathedral. Wow. The Queen is a sprightly 85 and will walk up those steps into the cathedral and it will be absolutely sensational. The last two centuries have been dominated by two women. Yes, Quite quite, right too. Quite striking, isn't it? Absolutely. We tourists probably won't get into St. Paul's, but it'll be a a grand procession and people will be lining the streets and so on. Yes, and there'll be big screens up in in the parks and uh, Trafalgar Uh, Square. And there'll probably be something associated with that as well, a celebration on the day, and there's going to be a big concert outside Buckingham Palace, which is going to be staged. Mm. Then there's a special exhibition in the Museum of London. First in 40 years. Yes, uh, all about Dickens's life and his works. And where's that again? Uh, the Museum of London, near St. Paul's, Paul's Cathedral. Oh, okay. St. Yeah. Paul's Underground, yeah. just five minutes walk from That's St. Paul's. a great little museum. I believe mm-hmm. it's yeah. free. Yep. Yeah. And uh, The exhibition is not free. No, but that's the, extra. Anytime you, you can go there yeah. and see the whole story of, mm. of London's history, and now we have this special yeah. exhibit yes. about mm. Charles Dickens. Yeah, and there'll be lots of themed walks as well, which we have on all the time in any mm. case, but more during this celebration. Also, it's the 50th anniversary of the Rolling Stones, 2012. Mm. Is it? There's talk of them making perhaps a final a concert, a comeback and a final concert in London. We can check out yeah. that as it unfolds. I've, I've had several comebacks. As, so <laughs> comebacks I'm sure are, it'll be. Comebacks are well, Not, not many people days. have turned up to celebrate. <laughs> <laughs> and, the, and the centennial of the Titanic's maiden and only voyage. Yeah. Yes. And that's... It links with the UK, but it links with London as well. There's a place called the Palm Court, which is in the Waldorf Hotel, which was remodelled on the Titanic. So it's almost like sinking if you go So there. we've got lots happening in London. And, uh, I mean, this is not necessarily an anniversary, but the, the new Harry Potter studio is opening up for fans. Yes. Of, yeah. Of, yeah. Of, just of, to the north of London. Yeah. Just yeah. to the north yeah. of London. And you, using kind of the original sets that people saw in the film. Mm-hmm. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're speaking with Gillian Chadwick and Tom Hooper, two blue badge guides from London, who are getting us up to date on what's going on in London. Our phone number is 877-333-7425. Darlene's on the phone in Roswell, Georgia. Darlene, thanks for your call. Thank you, Rick. I have a group of high school Girl Scouts that are going to London this summer, and we are going to visit the Harry Potter studios, and I also wanted to know about summer activities that might be going on in June prior to the Olympics or anything that we should know about during that time period. Well, first of all, Darlene, what do you know about the Harry Potter Studios? I know that it's supposedly a lot of the original stages or or whatever that they had during some of the movies. My girls are very excited about seeing all of the original props and things like that. One of the questions we were looking into is how to get there if the subway is running some sort of a, a tram or no, the subway doesn't go outside of London that far. Uh, you'll have to take a, probably a direct train, uh, one of the mainline trains, the overground trains. But the transport links will be very good, I'm yeah. sure of that. So it's a reasonable day trip from London. Oh, easily. Oh, it's, it's very an e- easy. easy day yeah. trip from London. It's not so this far out. quite exciting for fans of Harry Potter. Oh, yes. totally, because hitherto they've just been able to look at various bits of London where right. films were shot. And that's an industry in itself, these Harry yeah. Potter walks. And so I on. And recommend those very much mm. because you see Platform oh, 9 and 3 quarters and uh, lots of locations used mm. in the yeah. films. Darlene, that's a very good point. When you take your Girl Scout group over, guides like Tom and Gillian yeah. take walking tours in London. Gillian, what are some of the stops in London that are actually taken from the, the series? Well, in Leadenhall Market, one of the Victorian markets, there's a shop that was used as the Leaky Cauldron, one of the pubs uh, in the series. Do you know that, the Leaky Cauldron? Yes. Yes, yes yeah. Uh, then St Pancras Station, there's uh, Platform 9 and 3 quarters, which of course doesn't really exist. Yeah. King's Cross Station, not St Pancras. 
Uh, but they've made well, they, a, a section look like it would have looked well, in the film. But if you go there, St Pancras is the one which the car flew over. Do you remember that? Oh, that's right, yeah, in the second when film. When they missed the train and Potter mm. and Wheezy had to take the car flying. Yes. So if, if Darlene wants to uh, line her girls up with uh, an actual walking tour in London, would that be in London Walks? London or? Walks, yes. So there's a they great have, walking tour company that yeah. gives very affordable mm. walks, just scores yeah. of different walks leaving every day from all over London, mm-hmm. your hotel lobby will have the brochure. Yeah. Londonwalks.com. Mm. Yep. And in fact, anybody going to London, I think that's one of the, the great things to do is join wonderful guides, a lot of actors and historians mm. and so on that yeah. really have a, a passion for teaching London. And whatever quirky little uh, angle you want to get, you can find it. Good luck, Darlene, with a whole group of Girl Scouts going to <laughs> London for Harry Potter time. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you. They're looking forward to it. Thanks for your call. Bye-bye. David's on the line in Knoxville, Tennessee. Yes, a question I have that relates to crowd avoidance. I've probably seen all the major London sites over quite a number of trips there over the years. I'm interested in overlooked gems, treasures in the way of houses, gardens, museums, perhaps oddities that would be recommended that I and others you know, aren't aware of, particularly sites that might be easily accessible by the London Underground. So David's been many times to London, but what are some of the little hidden attractions that would be fun to know about? There are quite a few quirky places and museums which aren't necessarily advertised a lot. There's a very weird and excellent medical museum. Oh, yes. Which is um, in the Royal College of Surgeons. It's free Tuesday to Saturday. Hmm. And it has specimens collected by a man called John Hunter, often called the father of surgery in England, and it includes everything from skeletons of an eight-foot-something-tall man to some of the earliest artifacts like Lister's couch that he worked on when he developed antiseptic and things like that. That's definitely a good thing. You mentioned gardens. There's a very good museum, a garden history museum, uh, right opposite the Houses of Parliament. It's in St. Mary Lambeth Church. Hmm. Uh, And that's excellent. And Chelsea Physic Garden is also very good. Have you been to Kew Gardens? Uh, Yes, I have. Okay. Hampton Court? Yes. Oh, right, so you have done the main yeah. David's yeah. really yeah. scraping the barrel here for, for sites. You know, David, I found that Pollock Toy Museum really oh, yeah. quirky yeah. and excellent, and I didn't think I'd be into a toy museum that much, but mm. it was just brilliant. Have you really? been there, David? No. Good, we oh, found one. <laughs> uh, there's yeah. one called the Museum of Childhood in Bethnal Green, uh, which is a museum of all the different toys that, even though they'll be British, I'm sure you'll recognize lots of them uh, from over the different periods. If you want to get outside of London, in Bath, there's some beautiful museums. Mm-hmm. And then up in Cambridge, you'd find some fun museums. In Bath, you would have the Bath yeah. uh, Costume Museum. That and in yeah. Cambridge, there's the Fitzwilliam, which yeah. is stunning. Excellent museum. Yeah. Yeah. Oxford, the Ashmolean. There are also, uh, London's, there are lots of houses that you can also go to. There's, there's one which was used by the Astors, right by the Thames. Oh, which yes, has got just a, opened. Which yeah. has just been bought by a trust, yeah. and mm-hmm. it's got the most f- amazing interior mm. right next to Temple Underground Station. Yeah, and, and there's, <coughs> there's one also called Dennis Sever's House, which is in the Spitalfields area near mm. Liverpool Street, and it's a house that has been made exactly how it would have been in the 18th century. Oh, uh, and it was an American gentleman called Dennis Sever's who lived in London... Uh, he's now died, but the house is still uh, operating. It's fascinating. Whatever happened to the, uh, what is it, the Bromley Tea Museum? Was it the Bra- uh, yeah. Brahma, Brahma Tea Museum? Brahma, Mr. Brahma died, yes, and I think the tea museum is now sort of in. I think it died yes, with him. I think it, I think it slipped. That's too bad. Mm. Wellington's house, it's no secret. But oh, number yeah. one, yes, place. number one London. Yeah. Oh, it's one of the most beautiful. Famous naked statue of Napoleon. Napoleon yeah. Right. Canova. <laughs> Mm-hmm. David, have you been to Wellington's house? No. Okay, no. that's a major and, one. You've got to check and, that and out. Right, sure. And right next to it, if you go, is the Wellington Arch, which you can go in yeah. and go to the top and you can get good views, which you even look into the gardens of Buckingham Palace. That's is that Egyptian house in Holland Park? Do you mean Leighton House? Leighton House. It's yeah. got an Egyptian yes. room in it. That's, that's really yeah. fascinating. That's early 20th century. Yeah. You know, it's an interesting it's thing, David, about London. You can really go back and back and back, can't you, and always find new stuff. One thing that I've enjoyed doing is beachcombing in London. Uh-huh. And at, at a low tide on the Thames... It's best really? at low tide, yes. You, you go on a low <laughs> high, high tide. High tide, can, high tide can no cause fun. problems. But you'd be surprised at how much actual... Oh, old yes. stuff you yeah. find in London. Yeah, I've, you, tell us about very it. Very frequently, 
bones. Yeah. People clay get, pipes. People get very excited. Because yes. in the old days, you had yeah. uh, you know one-hit pipes. That's right. right. Yeah. And sometimes, seriously, it can almost be complete. They're not just broken right. ones. And these are pipes that yeah. go back... How old would you imagine these pipes are? Uh, 18th, 19th century. Mm. So 150 years mm. old, a pipe. And, yeah. and they would just uh, use it once and then throw it throw out the, the window, yeah. and it lands on the shore. And mm. there's a lot of storage in um, red terracotta pots, so you get terracotta pottery quite a bit on mm. the shore. And old uh, pottery shingles. Yeah, so. And I, I was once there... In, Somebody appeared over the wall, very excited, and they found a coin that went back to the 13th century. Oh, yeah, wow. I've spent a lot of time just strolling the yeah. the tidal flats there in London. Mm. It's just a fascinating mm. world. Just make sure you know when the tides are. Very important. Mm. David, thanks for your call. Good luck thanks in London. Thank you very much. Okay, bye now. Goodbye. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're talking about London and what's going on in 2012. We're joined by two blue badge guides from London. Tom Hooper and Jillian Chadwick. Our email is radio at ricksteves.com. And Bill in Charlotte, North Carolina emails us and he wrote, I'm considering visiting England in mid to late June during the Olympics. When and where should travelers expect price increases and limited availability for accommodations? They want to avoid the Olympic price increases and congestion. <laughs> it's hard to go to London during the Olympics and avoid the congestion well, and the price increases. If he's traveling in mid-June, that's not the time of the Olympics. The Olympics are... July. Oh, that's right. July. So he's going mid and late yeah. June. Yeah, so the be... prices are not going to be high. Well, let's make that clear. That the Olympics are from July 27 to August 12. Mm. Yeah. And then the break and then the Paralympics. I've got my personal question there because I'm coming in with my TV crew on uh, August 14th or so, two mm. days after the Olympics, and I'm just hoping it'll be calmed down. Yes, then. it yeah, should it be. It will be. So yeah. I'm sure you'll have and Olympic prices and then standard yes. prices yeah. for hotels. Yeah, and there's, there is, I was reading just a couple of weeks ago, there is some suggestion that, even in an Olympic year in a city, accommodation isn't always all sold and prices come down very close to yeah, the... Yeah, because there's a lot of this expecting. anticipation of easy yeah, money. Yeah, and, yeah, then and then a week, a month out, they realize... Then, oh, I better, yeah. better decrease fill the these rooms up. Yeah. So that's a very good point yeah. because in a lot of cases in recent history in Europe, people have thought they're going to get gouged. They've stayed away. Yeah. And then a month before the big fair or the big Olympics, is, they put things they on sale. The prices, yeah. It's perfectly natural. You know, we all think, oh, well, we won't do that because it would be too expensive. Then so many people do it that the prices come down. Mm. Now, you were talking about how these Olympics are the most green Olympics ever. Mm. Gillian, how have they done things that are quite an inspiration from an environmental sensitivity point of view? Well, apart from washing soil, mm -hmm. uh, they've also used the buildings that they had to knock down to make the area clear. Instead of carting it all away in trucks, mm. they've broken it all up into tiny pieces and used it in the foundations of the venues. So, so they ground up the yes. miserable, depressed slum of Stratford and they used it as mm. as the foundation yes. to build this new city yeah, that has some... a beautiful long-term life with good transportation connections exactly. downtown, providing affordable housing mm -hmm. for people yes. who once lived in a slum, basically. Mm. So the heritage of these Olympics is going to be quite yeah. a, yes. a beautiful thing. Another interesting point is that Anyone with a ticket for the games has a travel card for the transport system because they're not allowing anyone to drive to the games. That is very cool. So you buy a ticket, you buy with it a transportation pass, or at least that's the hope. Yeah. Because London has already experimented with this with your congestion. Yes. What do you call it? The congestion, congestion charge. Yes. Yeah. So there's a line, a circle in London, and if you drive across that line, what are you charged in the surety? You pay eight pounds eight a pounds, day, which is unless about, you live in the area. Well, that's how many dollars, roughly? Mm, 13, 14 13 dollars. or 14 dollars just mm. to drive into town. Yeah. Per day. Unless yeah. you're a resident or, or a taxi or something. Mm. Like this. this idea of not using traffic to get to the site has been carried through, as I understand it, also even in the way they brought the materials to build. Mm -hmm. Instead of using trucks, they've used railways to transport. Yeah, and water. And water. Yeah. So it's been quite a yeah. successful um, so far, and uh, the world will have its eyes set on London mm -hmm. uh, late July, early August uh, 2012. What are your plans for the Olympics, Gillian? Well, I've actually got tickets. I'm you one do? of the lucky ones, yeah. <laughs> How yeah, did you I've score got... those tickets? Uh, well, just the same way as everyone else. Oh, okay. No special treatment. Good, but just long in advance, going to the website and following the prompts? Yep. How about you, Tom? I failed to get tickets, so I shall be crying miserably. For <laughs> watching TV. Watching TV. In a pub yes. down the but, street from your house. But I'm, pretty sure, yes. but I'm pretty sure that we'll take part in the cultural 
festival yeah. because there's just going to be so much going on. You did mention that. It's going to be pretty yeah. funny whether you go to the games or not. It'll yeah. be a fun time, a very lively time to yes. be in it's, it'll, it'll be a very, it'll be a almost six-week celebration. Yeah, party atmosphere everywhere. Now talk for a moment about just that party atmosphere that because London is such a multicultural festival these mm-hmm. days. Uh, after the Olympics are over or before the Olympics, just basically peak season in London, what are the colorful districts to go to? Where will you find the most uh, vitality in the streets and so on? If it's markets, the two are going to be Camden, mm-hmm. which is vibrant all the time. Camden Locks. Camden Locks. Mm. You know, I just drove Camden through town. that area just accidentally as I was leaving town a couple months ago, and it was so charming and yeah. appealing yeah, and weird, colorful and, yeah. weird and, and young and hip. Yeah. And everything was so it's, cool it's, there. Yeah. It's brilliant for people watching as well. Oh, I loved just, it, yeah. And then the other market was Portobello Road on Saturdays. Mm. And that's right in... Very Which close is, to the yeah, centre. Notting Hill Gate. Notting Hill Gate area. And that's, yeah. what day is that best? Saturdays. Saturdays, yeah. Portobello mm. Road. Yeah. And, it's, and it's good for looking and buying. The Brixton area is uh, sort of a Caribbean district. Yeah, it's very colourful. Good shopping, actually, and good eating. Good eating. Yeah. yeah. What concerns Jeff is the only place I've ever been mugged in my whole life was in Brixton. Yeah, wear a money belt. Wear a money belt. They knew right where it was. <laughs> oh, really? <laughs> no, I was fine, but I mean, it was just it's a, it's a scary neighborhood if you go at the wrong time of day or if you're wandering or bad Yeah, I wouldn't go there at night, but during the day. Probably two lively. in the morning when you were there was not the best time. <laughs> A lot of it's common sense. Common sense, yeah. yeah. So Brixton is a very colorful, edgy, yeah. kind of Caribbean sort of situation. Very good. So, yeah. so you've got lots of action in London this year, mm. whether you're there for the Jubilee, mm. whether you're there to celebrate Charles Dickens' 200th birthday, or to cheer on your team at the Olympics. There's plenty to do in London in 2012. Yes, definitely. Gillian Chadwick, Tom Hooper. May the best team win. (laughs) Thank you. Medals. (laughs) Medals, medals, medals in London this year. Okay, thanks for joining us. Thank you. Now get this. London colleges, I was there too. And you know what they said? Some of it was true. London colleges at the top of the dial. And after all this, won't you give me a smile? Of course, you don't have to fly to London to find a celebration. You might think of our next segment on Travel with Rick Steves as a second chance to celebrate Easter. This weekend, Eastern Orthodox churches who use the Julian calendar are observing their biggest holiday of the year. And as our guides from Bulgaria and Greece are about to explain to us, each of their own countries have a particular Easter tradition that dates back in some cases to even before Christ. We're exploring two styles of Orthodox Easter next on Travel with Rick Steves. Some time ago, we asked our friends Lubia Boyanin from Bulgaria and Anastasia Gaitanu from Greece to record a short interview about Christmas traditions in their countries. They explained that for Orthodox Christians, Easter is actually the biggest holiday of the year. And in talking with them, I also learned that there's certainly more than one way to color an Easter egg. So let's learn more about some of the Orthodox Easter observances and about the traditions that go with the biggest holiday season of the year, in Greece and Bulgaria. Lubia, what do you look forward to in Bulgaria for Easter? How is oh, it a this special is, holiday? This is my favorite time of the year. Why and I think not only for me, for all of Bulgarians. More than Christmas? More than Christmas. For us, uh, resurrection means the beginning of new life, beginning of uh, the nature is coming to be green, to to be happy after the long winter. And for, for us... We are celebrating with lots of events, I would say, with the deep roots of pagan, from the paganism. So the whole Easter thing, resurrection and springtime and the pagan ideas that winter is over, this is all still yes. a part of this yes. psyche Yes, so the resurrection Bulgaria. is very important. Right. And uh, for the religious uh, view of, uh, of the event, resurrection means beginning of the new life. We all were saved. That's the best news uh, this in the is Christian the, this festival. This is the very yeah. important, and we are celebrating with the midnight services. Mm-hmm. 
but uh, the event is not only one um, particular day. The event is the whole week, starting from St. Lazarus Day. Okay, now I want to get into that in just a moment, but I want to hear from Anastasia. As you look forward to Easter in Greece with the uh, Greek Orthodox religion, what's it like? Well, for us, I, I suppose for the whole Orthodox world, Easter is a lot more important than Christmas because Christmas is the beginning, is the birth, but the birth is nothing without the crucifixion and the resurrection. So it's a, it's a lot more important, and it does not only mean the beginning of a new life, it's, uh, it's the salvation of mankind in general, if, of course, you believe in it, because everything has to do with faith. You either believe in that or not. When you celebrate Greek Orthodox uh, Easter, what does Lent mean to you? Lent is um, a period, so-called Great Lent, because mm-hmm. there are three. Lent periods okay. in the whole of the year. One before Christmas, one in the summer, and one before Easter. It's a 40 days fasting time period. And fasting means um, not just avoiding to eat certain foods, but also uh, trying to lead a life that is away from sin and from the small joys of life. Like, for example, if you're a smoker, you try to reduce a bit smoking. Not only that. And you just try to think more of yourself in a spiritual way. And, and It's a kind of a spiritual preparation for Easter, then. It is. It is a spiritual preparation for Easter, definitely. And it is a way of, of letting you understand the Easter week better, uh, cleansing you, you have, yourself. You have three of these meditative periods for sort of getting your soul ready for some great festival. Yeah. And the Easter Lent is called the Great Lent. Yes. Now, what about Clean Monday? Clean Monday is the beginning of the Great Lent. And we call it like that, Clean Monday, because it has to do with cleansing yourself. Okay. And, and it's the beginning of fasting. The beginning. Okay. This is a public holiday in Greece, this Clean it Monday. Is. Clean Monday is a public fa- holiday. Is it a family time? Yeah. It's definitely a family time, and usually people meet, go out then, and many times we have uh, lunch together. Of course, lunch in Greece uh, during holidays is not just a one-hour thing. It could be a one-day-long thing. <laughs> it's your big, fat <laughs> Greek holiday meal. Like that, something like that. Lubia, tell us more about Lent in Bulgaria. The Lent, oh, it's very, also very interesting. We're starting uh, preparation for Lent with the two very happy events. One is the... The last day when we eat meat, uh, it's called Mesni Zaguvezni. Whoa, the last day of meat for the 40 days. The last day of huh? meat is uh, eight weeks before Easter. It's kind of like Mardi it's Gras a Sunday. When, when everything it's, goes. Uh, yeah. Usually this is a Sunday and we visit uh, families when we can eat uh, meat together to share. But the next week, the next Sunday is um, more very important because we call it the cheese, Sirni uh, Zaguvezni, the cheese Sunday. When uh, this is the last day when the families are eating dairy farm products like a cheese, milk, uh, eggs. Wow, this and, is so. Um, first of all, there's your last meat, and then a, a week later, it's your last cheese and dairy. Last cheese. And this day, when we celebrated this Kotsirnizaguvesni uh, day, for us is the best, we say, because it's forgiveness day. And if you do mistakes during the year, if you say some bad words to a neighbor or to parents or to your relatives or friends, uh, this is a very good excuse when you can go to, to them to this day, you can go and you can say, please forgive my mistakes, my sins. Now, usually the younger people are doing this uh, towards the older relatives or friends, and we all have um, received this forgiveness. We are now ready to do more mistakes for the next year. <laughs> you clean the slate. <laughs> and we clean. And uh, this is on Sunday. Uh, for us, a clean Monday means that you should not eat anything. And uh, in some areas of Bulgaria, they um, you have in America uh, mummers. Uh, mummers, mummers for, I think, Philadelphia mummers who yeah. are dancing for the 1st of January. We have a mummers who are for the January, for the new year. How are these but mummers now the mummers, with the, Easter? The mummers, uh, they are the ones who, uh, through the games, are presenting resurrection of nature, and usually those mummers, uh, they are men only. Women are not allowed to participate in this event. Some of them with big masks, very big uh, tall masks, and with the bells. And they are jumping. They are not allowed to talk. They can jump, and uh, with the sound of the bells, uh, they push out. The idea is to push out the bad spirits from the village. 
But the most important part of the mummers group, this is a group of uh, men who have an animal. This is uh, two men who are presenting uh, the play of animal could be um, ox or then be a camel or a goat or any other animal. And these uh, uh, mummers, they have to visit every home in the village. They, they have a quite a difficult job for this day. They are visiting and in front of every home, uh, when they greet the owners of the home, the animal is dying. And when the animal is dying, there is one person who plays, it's like a theater, like a performance, like a carnival. One person uh, is a doctor who helps the animal to be uh, turned back to the life and everybody jump, everybody enjoy. And so this is kind of mystical presentation so this of is resurrection. Sort of a, a mystical theater representing the mystical theater and the, the event. Hmm. The event uh, he finish uh, late afternoon before the sunset at the square of the village when um, those mummers, uh, we call kukeri, they're presenting a plowing, symbolic plowing. and so Plowing. Plowing. In the, in the dirt, plowing yeah. in, a, in a circle and uh, spreading kawits. Okay, so this sounds like there's these crazy decorated dancers that celebrating yes, the arrival crazy, of spring. Very it's crazy. It's a little bit pagan. It's as a well pagan. As it's a pagan. All right. What day do the mummers come exactly? Uh, they're doing their celebration on the Sunday, the Tuesday, forgive me. Tuesday. Day, so this is. And the Monday, the clean Monday. They're doing. So, now, is clean Monday various. the beginning of Holy Week? Or the beginning of Lent, because there's beginning a, of Lent, beginning of Lent, beginning of Lent, okay. and after that we have this uh, this week of uh, Lent. We are not allowed for the first three days. We are not allowed to eat anything and to drink anything. The drink you can have on Monday after five o'clock after sunset. So this Lent business is pretty serious here. If you're it's a if serious, you're, you're a very serious. So three days you have to be very strict. Okay. And then we have a celebration on Saturday. Uh, we call it the Horse Easter. It's a Saint Theodore Day. According to Saint the Orthodox Theodore Church, Day, Theodore the Horse Day, Easter, the Horse Easter, when everyone who has a horse has to decorate the horse a very pretty well. And the, here I brought this, you see this red and well, white like amulet, a little pom pom. <laughs> yes, put these, we uh, call it like a martinitza. Yes, all the horses are decorated yeah. with those pompons um, wow. around, and they have a parade and horse races in uh, every village. It's, it's a very cheerful day, Saint Theodore Day or the Horse Easter. <laughs> Our guests right now on Travel with Rick Steves are Lubia Boyanin from Sofia, Bulgaria, and Anastasia Gaitanu from Thessaloniki in Greece. They're teaching us about the colorful Easter celebrations that culminate this weekend in the Greek and Slavonic Orthodox churches. Now let's go back to Greece here. Anastasia, Bulgarians really pull out all the stops here. They decorate their horses. They don't eat cheese. They don't eat meat. They got these mummers dancing around. They, they fake kill animals and bring them back to life. <laughs> Does Greece do the same? Uh, no, not really. Well, <laughs> we do have uh, the two Sundays, the Sunday of meat, the last Sunday of meat, and the last Sunday of cheese is the same. Right. But uh, no, we don't, you don't decorate have the your No, <laughs> We do have uh, feasts like that, that are relics, let's say, of the pagan time. But this is all during the carnival time, till Clint Monday. Clint Monday, there is nothing like that. Okay, let's talk about you've had all of this denial that is all around Christendom during Lent. Now you're going to sort of celebrate the resurrection, mm -hmm. the arrival of spring, the uh, resurrection of Jesus, and you're going to eat well. Is that yeah, right? So definitely. now, in Greece, how do you make up for all that denial from your stomach's point of view? <laughs> well, first of all, you have to think of what you're not allowed to eat. It's not exactly like in Bulgaria. Well, during the 40 days, 48 days actually, with the Easter week, you're not allowed to eat any dairy products, uh, any fish, uh, any meat, anything wow. that has blood. Hmm. So that's why you're not allowed to eat fish. But you can eat um, uh, seafood, uh, for example. Squids are allowed. Squids don't have blood. Well, they got you don't see it. Of course they yeah. do, but you don't see <laughs> okay. it. It's what you don't yeah. see. Okay. Right? But, um, and then you come to the Easter week, and the Easter week is the most important one because that's the Passion Week. So you have to, let's say, symbolically suffer with God together. Right. Right. And uh, there is a, a climax to the whole thing, mm -hmm. starting mainly on... Um, Thursday, and Thursday is the preparation for the grave. Then also there is a, a wonderful mass in the church. And then on Friday, it's uh, the day where... Good Friday. Uh, Good Friday, exactly. Uh, we do have in the church the so-called epitaph, which means on the grave. That is a kind of table that has a canopy on it. And symbolically, it is the grave of Jesus. And there is also a kind of cloth on it where you see uh, Jesus then as an, an embroidery, usually. 
um, depicting the body of Jesus then going into the grave. And that is decorated with flowers, usually either with carnations or with roses, white and red. And there are the crosses that are made with the roses. And then there is a great procession on that day. There is a great liturgy, of course. And this is Good Friday. Yeah, that's Good Friday. And it's then, morning. And then day. Sunday arrives. And what and happens? Then, and then Saturday. Saturday, Saturday mm-hmm. is the main climax because Saturday is the resurrection day. Okay. And uh, that happens at midnight. Midnight, Saturday midnight, night. Midnight, yeah. Midnight. Of course, we don't exactly know when it happened because in, in every gospel book it's a bit different. Right, but, but that's we the prefer big, midnight. It's the big um, Easter yeah. Mass is, yeah. is midnight Saturday. Mm-hmm. And then after the Mass? And then after the Mass, then uh, during the Mass, first of all, we get the Holy Light. That is the eternal divine light given to us by God. Uh, there is this wandering Jerusalem where the lights uh, go on on themselves, like the candles. And there is a special flight every year from Olympic Airways that brings that light, that divine light, from Jerusalem to Athens. Because due wow. to the time difference, it gets on time. Right. Or in time. And, uh, of course, you only get it that real light in Athens. In every other church, the priest lights the candles. But that light is a blessed light. And that brings... Um, health and luck and prosperity to your house. So you bring it to the house and you make with uh, with the smoke the sign of the cross at the doorstep or, or the lintel of the door so that you're protected and blessed during the whole year by God. And then you get into the house, of course, and the first thing you do, and some do it also in, in the yard of the church, is we have red eggs. The egg is a very old symbol it's a pagan symbol, actually, but the church has taken it and given a new uh, symbolical meaning to it. It's a symbol of the new life because in the egg there is a life. And if the conditions are the correct ones, this life can develop. So it's like the grave of Jesus and the resurrection. That's the symbolical meaning of that. Okay. In Bulgaria, Lubia, you have a, the good luck crack also, right? Tell us about that. Oh, uh, yes. We have it uh, almost the same. Sure. Um, except we have uh, for a week before Easter, the Saturday uh, before Easter, we have a celebration of St. Lazarus Day. And St. Lazarus Day for us is very important for all the girls, uh, not married girls. Not the girls have to be dressed as a little bride, except the veil. And they have to have a beautiful decoration on their heads with the flowers, and they are dancing. So the girls have to walk around the village in uh, these groups, and they have one girl who is uh, leading the procession, and she's called Kumitsa. Kumitsa uh, means the, like a little princess or little queen. Uh-huh. And uh, they're dancing uh, dances. This is special dances. It's called the St. Lazarus dances. The girls are called Lazarki from St. Lazarus Day. And they um, uh, they have a songs, the most beautiful songs, maybe one over 300 different songs they have to bless every one member of the family. They are collecting white eggs and the next Thursday, the great Thursday, they can dye eggs and they can paint the eggs with the beautiful colors, with the symbols, different symbols. The eggs have to be painted. And these eggs they can give when the, the time of Easter comes to their beloved boyfriends or to people that they really love it. So the colored Easter eggs really have a lot of uh, care and, and thought that goes into them. Yes. And it's a way to yes. express your love for yes. a special person. And uh, the table we have on Friday, the table that is taken out of um, the altar and it stays inside the church, we obligatory we have to pass under the table. Three times. Uh, under the table? No, we have only one time oh, because it's not, <laughs> <easy. laughs> it's not easy. It's not easy. So you have the big mass at midnight on East, yes, uh, on Saturday yes. night. And we have also Bulgaria Air who fly to Jerusalem with a special charter flight to Jerusalem. And together o- Olympic with this Air light, and Bulgarian Air mm-hmm. bring the light from Jerusalem to Sofia and Athens. Yes. So I want to stress that uh, this is a, a very, very alive festival in the, in the religious calendar yes. in Greece and in Bulgaria. Yes. And if you really enjoy Easter, it's generally not on the same day as Easter in the Western Christian world. Uh, I understand that in the Orthodox uh, Church, it's based on the Julian calendar, and that lets it fall generally after Easter in Western Europe and the United yeah. States. Of course, in Easter, all over the world, people say Christ is risen. Hallelujah. Yes. Can you say that in Bulgarian? In Bulgarian, me? we say, Christos voskrese, and we reply, Vuistina voskrese. He is risen indeed. 
And in Greece? Oh, we say Christos Anesti. And the answer is um, Alithos Anesti. And if, if you just want to say Happy Easter, what do you say? Kalo Pascha. Justit Velikten. And for me, it sounds a lot easier. Happy Easter. Lubya <laughs> Boyanin from Bulgaria and Anastasia Gaetanu from Greece. Thank you very much and happy Easter. Thank, Thank you. you. You too. Happy Easter. Christos vos kresse. You can celebrate the places you visit and even the simple events of everyday life in the form of a haiku poem. The radio section of ricksteves.com has a link for sending us your original travel haiku. Here are some travel experiences that our listeners turned into poetry. Babette Salas from Springfield, Illinois, updates a haiku she heard on Travel with Rick Steves several years ago, written by a listener in Dallas. This time, she includes the Global Soap Project, It's a collaboration between hotels and an agency that promotes public health in the developing world by bringing soap to people who need it. Tiny hotel soap, too small to wash my body, yet I take you home. Babette updates it like this. Tiny hotel soap, first I bathe, then you're off to Global Soap Project. Jeffrey Staley of Bothell, Washington, paints this portrait of the view from his window seat on a flight from Boston to Seattle. Cloud pearls curl proudly above Lake Superior. Water winks below. While Pamela Wilding from San Rafael, California, turned this common flight experience into a poem. Our flying tin lands, sardine passengers await a can opener. Travel with Rick Steves is produced by Tim Tatton with Sarah McCormick at Europe Through the Back Door in Edmonds, Washington. Thanks to Keith Sticklemeyer for reading today's travel haiku. We'll look for you next week with more travel with Rick Steves. Rick Steves teaches smart travel to England, to Eastern Europe, Greece, and beyond. At ricksteves.com, you'll find an archive of interviews from his radio show, free audio tours, a monthly travel newsletter, and a world of information to help you turn your travel dreams into smooth and affordable reality. To gear up for your next adventure, begin your trip at ricksteves.com.